welcome to Beer Stories for Private Equity. Join us for our weekly happy hour, tapping into 27 years of PE experience, one pint at a time. Beer Stories for Private Equity is powered by Monogram Group. On today's show, we're excited to be joined by George Palafas from Continuum Equity Partners. And for Monogram Group, here's your host, Scott Markman. Please fasten your seatbelts. George, welcome to the show. Thanks, Scott. Great to be here. You know, per our brand, I'm going to open and crack open, even though it's pretty early Chicago time, I'm going to crack open a Corona and as a nod to our good friend Snoop Dogg and, and Andy Sandberg. But I'm going to tell you why, George. This will be the only freaking time that I'm going to give you complete license to trash the shit out of me and you know why and i need a beer to listen to it so let's go you you can tell me every idiot effing thing about my football team because you're idiots in your neck of the woods last weekend go well you sure were uh i think it starts with basically zero yards of offense in the second half um three turnovers uh we basically handed the game back to you and you turned it over again um (laughs) And while nobody has accused uh, Mike Tomlin of being a better coach than Harbaugh, I think that the facts speak for themselves. I cannot disagree with anything. It was the most painful weekend as a Baltimore sports fan I can ever, ever, ever remember. And as much as the Orioles, you know, were over their heads and got swept by the Rangers, and God bless you know, the Rangers for their performance. Watching the Ravens was like a slow-moving car wreck in real time over three hours after the first quarter. And whatever um, idiocy that they wrought on their fans and the gloating with which a Steelers fan can take is so well-deserved. Yeah, well, I, I have to admit, some embarrassing things on on my behalf. Uh, we were in the we were in the box, uh, and we had twenty customers from one of our portfolio companies there. It was awesome, really intense environment. And uh, what better game to take them to the Ravens Steelers, right? Um, and we were down. I forget the exact. There was so much that happened in the last like six minutes of the game, um, and. As you know, I have three children under five years old, so I have four belly buttons at home that I'm responsible for. Um, All of them were awake, screaming, and when you leave the Steelers-Ravens game, after the game, it takes about an hour and a half to get home. So I left like an idiot. We were down three points with like five minutes to go. So I missed all of it. I didn't see a lick of it. I was listening to it. It was it was horrible, right? So I texted the the folks that were at the game. Hey guys, what uh, did I miss anything? Uh, uh, yeah, only 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 the single greatest moment in Pittsburgh Steelers sports since we beat Tom Brady at home like three years ago. So there you go. All right. Well, it's um, I get to, I get to potentially visit the horror Sunday morning at nine thirty from London. Um, oh, and we'll, we we will see how it goes. All right, let's get to. Yeah, 
let's get to the matter at hand. Sure. So you're obviously a native son of Pittsburgh. You got your MBA um, at Wharton, um, and then spent eight years at P- uh, PNC Mez. Um, yeah. Talk talk about your Pennsylvania roots and kind of what led you and the guys, the other your partners, to found the firm. Yeah, I, I mean, for all of us, uh, for me in particular, um, that story starts, frankly, in the early 1900s. Um, for me, uh, my my grandfather came to the United States from Greece, um, and immediately, you know, after you know growing up in East Liberty here in Pittsburgh, I uh, went to World War II, um, came back victorious, of course, um, and you know. You know, at that point in time, you know, he didn't have two fucking nickels to rub together between strangers. And he had two options, right? Um, work my ass off and be honest and hardworking or starve, right? Those are those are the two doors that he was presented with. He, he chose door number one um, and he built the business out of his basement like a lot of entrepreneurs. Um, he sold it. It was a chocolate manufacturing business. Um, he sold it, uh, the year I was born about a month before I was born, um, which is unfortunate for me, given that I had his name, right. Uh, and, uh, you know, so my whole life, I kind of had a, uh, a respect for, you know, the entrepreneurial spirits and particularly in America that, that allows us to, um, the, the, uh, the fortune that we have to be able to do basically anything you want, right. And from a young age, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to be my own, my own boss. Um, and in large part so that, you know, I can dictate the positive impact, uh, that, that, that you can have as a good entrepreneur, uh, on your community, on, on the, on the U S economy. Um, so, so that, that is, you know, my long history uh, of how I got to where I am today. Um, you know. I spent uh, five year, years in New York City after college as an investment banker. You know, there's no place in the world better to be as a 25 year old, uh, you know, ass kicker, name taker than than Manhattan. Uh, but for me, it was it was time to uh, grow up, move back home, start a family. Uh, and I, I spent eight great years at PNC. I learned a lot uh, with those guys, um, and. Um, you know, Pittsburgh is is the is the epicenter of you know the United States' manufacturing history. Uh, I come from a manufacturing background. My partners do as well. They have similar family stories uh, as I do. Um, and and we thought, you know, what better way to be an entrepreneur than to start a business that owns multiple businesses, right? How how much better can you uh, effectuate your um, your impact, um, on the community and on the environment than that. So, um, we have a passion for manufacturing. Uh, we have a passion for taking businesses, um, that, that are very high quality companies, uh, and taking them to the next level, uh, utilizing, um, a lot of the lessons that we've learned over our careers, um, and in implementing quite a bit from, from our advisors, um, and our investors. And it's, it's been a lot of fun. Um, and highly, uh, highly successful so far. So, so let's then take it to the n- next logical step, which is candidly the naming of your firm, because it was sure. not, you know, the street you grew up on, or you know, where your family took a vacation or something, which, which is the 
origin story of a lot of the stuff in this sector, but it came from a pillar of how and why you were going to do what you did in the companies you acquired, which was Continuous Improvement or Kaizen. Talk about that because ultimately that's the name of the firm is Continuum is a mashup of continuous improvement. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. I think, you know, and Scott, we, we talked about this, you know, years ago, right? And, uh, you know, if you look at 90% of private equity funds, it's an inanimate object in a color, right? In, in the reverse order. So pick a color, blue, pick an inanimate object, blue rock. You look up blue rock capital, I guarantee you it exists, right? So we, we needed to be- There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with, sorry for the, the, the folks over at Blue Rock, I'm sure your returns are great. Um, but um, we wanted something that, that had real meaning, right? Uh, beyond, you know, I grew up on the street or I like vacationing in, in this area or something uh, a little bit uh, less meaningful to us. Um, and, you know, the, the, the core tenant of our um, operational strategy uh, and our underwriting process is lead manufacturing. Um, the core tenant of lean manufacturing is the process of continuous improvement and a, a commitment to analyze the way that you manufacture a product, the way that you go to market, improve it, start in the beginning and do it again is, is a virtuous cycle within a business. And we do that with every company that we buy. Um, we, we do that before we buy a company to start quantifying uh, what the impact of our, of our playbook is going to be. Um, and, uh, it's something that will never go out of style. It is, uh, robust to business cycles. Uh, it is robust to economic environments. There isn't a company, an industry or, or, or an economic, uh, situation where continuous improvement isn't critically important to growth. So, um, we're, we're very proud to, to, uh, to share that message, uh, with the market. So. When you think about sort of this kind of inherently bottom-up philosophy and strategy, as opposed to t top-down or hey, the you know the uh, the deal guy said do this. So, yeah. from a cultural perspective, as you as you interact and you collaborate with management and the all the companies, it's a different mindset. And I'm, there's no right or wrong to this; it's just different. But I want you to talk about that because it has cultural impact after acquisition. Sure. Um, no, no, that's, that's exactly right. Um, you know, look, w th this is a relatively unique approach to, uh, private equity investing. Um, you know, I was exposed to, uh, many different investing and management styles over the course of my career. And, and by and large, they all look relatively similar. The private equity fund sits on the board. Uh, the, the management team reports to the board. Uh, they check in on a quarterly basis. They give them some stretch goals to achieve. They measure them, they do some add-on acquisitions, and you know, um, that's generally where most PE funds play, right? Um, when you're changing the operations of a company, right, and you're changing the way a business uh, has their flow of materials go through the facility, right? Um, you need to be physically present on site, on the shop floor, understanding how that process works, right? That can't be done through a Zoom screen. That can't be done at the board level. You actually need to get your fingernails dirty. Um, on top of that, you know, culturally, Pittsburgh in the Midwest is, is a relatively blue-collar town, right? They don't, uh, you know, the, the people that, that live here and work here, um, you know, they don't necessarily take kindly to, 
you know, folks parachuting in from another city, telling them what to do, leaving and telling them, send me the money, let me know when it's done. Uh, and, you know, our, our approach with particularly Kaizen events is we don't tell the management team how to manufacture a product, right? We don't tell them what to do. We simply create the environment for their ideas to come to life, right? So at one of our businesses, um, we completely upended the, the flow of materials of their business and their manufacturing process. We spent almost no money doing this. Um, all we did was spend our time and attention figuring it out. Um, and the reason for that is nobody knows how to make a product better than the guy that's getting paid, you know, $25 an hour working on the shop floor, making that product on a daily basis, right? I don't know where the pitch points are. I don't know uh, the the proper order of how things should flow through the facility. That person does, right? Um, so what we do is we go and we have hundreds of conversations with the people that work on the shop floor and they all have their little silos of, of, of impact. And they'll say, you know what, George? Um, first of all, it's really unsafe that I have to reach underneath this I-beam and, and get this piece of material and reach back. Sometimes I bump my head and, and then I have to go back to my work cell and complete this task. I have to go back and put the material back on the shelf. Um, and it would be much better if there was a little bit of inventory buffer to my left. I could complete everything right here. And then it goes to the next person, almost like an assembly line, right? Great idea, John. Um, we'll take that into consideration. So you have hundreds of those conversations. You put together uh, a bit of a collage of all of those outputs. And then what we do is we let the employees decide what's the best option of these five different collages we put together, right? So... Not only is that the most impactful because you're getting it directly from the source, right? But the employees have much more ownership and much more pride over the new manufacturing process because it truly came from them. And then they see the impact. It's safer, it's faster, there's less waste. Um, and in you know, multiple of our businesses, we have doubled manufacturing capacity just by doing that. It costs $0 to do that. It just takes your time and effort. That's it. Okay, so, so that was leading to my next question, which is: you now have five five platforms, or no? Uh, we we exited one platform, yeah. but okay. now we have four. Yeah. You, you have had five, right? Over, we had had five, correct? Over two and a half year period. So you already have data that this is, I'll call it repeatable and a little bit predictable about the wisdom of this approach. And again, I'm saying there's no right or wrong, but it's not like every PE firm pursues this agenda. Yeah, I think that uh, the, the the difference is with us, uh, we will always have a relatively small target in portfolio, right? Um, you can't, unless you have a staff of 100 people that are like-minded and lean practitioners and, and continuous improvement believers, right? Um, you can't do this with 40 companies at once, right? Um, you would need a ton of people in order to do that, right? That are talented and have the, the, the ability and the gumption to execute, right? Um we have four businesses now. We're about to acquire a fifth. Um, you know, we we envision our portfolio at any period in time floating between six and ten companies, right? And we have now we've grown from three people uh, in my basement uh, three years ago. Uh, we now have fifteen people, uh, and that's plenty of individuals to execute the strategy. Um, so we will likely add a handful of folks over time, um, but uh, I don't envision us, you know, being. 120 people, 50 portfolio companies, uh, like some people do out there. And that's, that's okay. There's something wrong with that model. Um, 
but uh, in order to execute the uh, the strategy that that we do, um, you, you need a lot of in-person attention from the continuum team. Now, to the flip side, now that you have a little bit of you know tread under the tires, what has bubbled up that you didn't anticipate that you've had to solve for? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. I think that uh, you know, depending on the business, um, and I, and this is going to sound like a bit of a no shit uh, comment, uh, but I did not anticipate it. Um, in many circumstances, a lot of these folks are uh, are pretty resident to listen to this, right? They've been making things the same way for twenty years, right, um, with some minor enhancements along the way. So when somebody comes in, particularly at, at my age, right, and says, guys, stop what you're doing, right? We're not going to do anything on Thursday or Friday, but look at our manufacturing process and change it completely and improve it. And I promise you, it'll be better for everybody on the back end of this. Uh, a lot of a lot of folks are stuck in their ways and they they are a little hesitant to uh, to really buy into that, right? So some individuals, it takes some, you know, explanation. Um, what we have the benefit now that we did it two years ago is case studies, right? So originally we got a little bit of like, George, what the hell are you talking about? Right? Like this makes no sense to me. And it's like, trust me, trust me, please just pay attention and we'll get through this together and you'll be happy and we'll be happy. And we're going to grow and make a lot of money together. Right. Um, and you know, they, they got there, it was successful. Uh, and what we have now is we we don't only have a playbook that we can explain to people, but we can say, look at these five examples, right? Um, I know that um, this sounds crazy, but here's how quickly it can work if we all work together, right? And that, that's pretty powerful. So what's interesting about what you said, George, and I have to correlate it to what we do, is um, we have an expression that I say to clients or prospects all the time. You know what it is? Change is hard. Yeah. Now, look. On, on the surface, what we're going to do when we come in to kind of evolve a brand is you're yeah. going to be in a better place. And trust me, four months after it goes live, you're going to say, holy crap, how do we live without this? But change is hard. And getting people to buy into, you know, sort of our approach to managing that collaboratively, you know, we get a certain amount of pushback. With you guys, it was like a clean sheet of paper. And you were open to a lot of stuff you weren't changing things, you were inventing things. And it's a different mindset, right? right? And it's the same, that's what you just said about your businesses as well. That whole trust me, and it kind of like, yeah, but it's like I'm out of my comfort zone and I got these guys telling me I'll be in a better place. I don't believe it. And I understand that. Yeah. Now, we've been able to transition to a uh, show me, don't tell me mentality, <laughs> right? Whereas previously we had to tell them that it would work and now we can show them how it works, right? It is quantifiable. You can look at the numbers. You can look at the units going out the door. You can look at the growth and profitability. And what's what's been so attractive to uh, you know the people that work there, the business owners that we're chasing for our next acquisition into our investors is industrial investing returns kind of look like this. They're you know relatively steady, right? But it lucrative. And the downside is typically symmetrical, right? They have a level of risk. They have a level of return we've been able to do with this is tilt this upward graph like that, mm -hmm. right? So we can drive very fast, very lucrative returns in a business that if we did nothing at all, we didn't touch it, 
this very stable, healthy cash flow company, right? So we're able to create this asymmetry um, that everybody feels the benefit of. Now, do you believe that because the kinds of businesses and the strategies that you're pursuing, that the arc of, you know, I'll call it, you know, inflection point is, is faster than maybe other models in private equity where there's maybe a four or five year kind of whatever, but you're like, you see it faster. Yeah, we, we do. Um, we, we absolutely do. I, I think that um, there, there's two uh, the, there's two layers to that. Uh, the first layer is we get started on the improvements right away, right? And the second layer is the, the improvements are just very tangibly identifiable, right? How many units can you produce in a week, right? That's kind of where we start. Okay, what's the demand for these units? It's you can make X, demand is Y, right? How do we increase the capacity to meet the demand in the market? Um, you know, we are fortunate that for for quite a while in the United States, there's going to be uh, a lot of demand for domestically manufactured components, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of the manufacturing from Southeast Asia is coming back here. Um, COVID really accelerated a trend that, um, you know, was inevitable anyway. But when the supply chains broke completely, um, people have long memories of, not being able to get parts, not being able to get quality parts to make their products and sell to the customers. There's nothing more painful than we have a customer calling you and say, hey, I need 100,000 units next month, and you have to tell them no, <laughs> right? The, these business owners, they don't forget that. And for several decades, they had cheap parts coming from China. Uh, it worked. It was fine. They hit their orders. Um, over the years, the quality has suffered. Um, COVID accelerated their ability to source the products anyways. And, you know, I, there's a there's a phrase that we use uh, here in that price and cost are two different things. And a lot of people don't really think of it. Price is what you pay for something. Cost is what you pay for something plus the risk of that item, right? So it's or quality or it's unreliable or it's not going to get here in time. Those are all hidden in cost in addition to the price. And what's, what's happened is the price from product sourced abroad, you know, continues to be cheaper than price with the price of a similar product source in Ohio. Uh, the risk of that product has increased rather dramatically. So the cost is increased. So if you think about it in cost, it is less costly to source from Ohio than it is from Southeast Asia for sort of right now, following along about what you just said, um, you have George and his colleagues and and the monogram team have done a series of uh, videos. And in the, doing that work, you know, I have gone with their team into these factories, and I see these small towns in Western PA, and you kind of look around and it's like, boy, this is like the land that time forgot. But then you go into this factory and it's like technology heaven. And yeah. so you, you folks have sort of found a way to kind of identify, companies that are already further along in the technology um, in, uh, deployment into the manufacturing, design manufacturing and consistency of, you know, engineer, highly engineered parts and found a way to use technology to not only improve quality, but grow job base and, and sort of, again, this virtuous cycle. So talk about that for a second, because it's so splashes you in the face when you walk into these companies like the robotics and just what they're doing is remarkable. 
Yeah, no, it's it's really interesting. I mean, uh, you know, one thing that a lot of folks don't realize about Pittsburgh, everyone associates it with a defunct steel town, which is not the case. You know, I'm looking out of the Allegheny River right now. It's not Mediterranean blue, but it's getting there. Um, and uh, the the city has transformed over the years. It was obviously heavy industrial, um, but now there's a lot of tech in Pittsburgh. There's a lot of healthcare in Pittsburgh. And that stems from Carnegie Mellon and University of Pittsburgh and the other universities in town. Um, so there's a lot of technology and incubation uh, in and around the city. Um, and the businesses uh, that that uh, are still here on the industrial side uh, have leveraged that to to quite a to quite a degree. So there is a bit of a dichotomy where you're you know going into a factory and, and it looks like you know you're walking into a scene in the Lorax. You open the doors and there's flat screens everywhere and, and people are measuring things and there's Absolutely. high tech, you know, uh, there's robots that are, that are helping, uh, the manufacturing process. Um, but no, that's a huge thing that we embrace and not all the businesses that we look at are as far along as the, in the, that curve as we'd like them to be. Uh, but it's something that we deploy, um, at our portfolio companies, um, you know, uh, getting better data systems. Uh, we now have a partner, that we utilize uh, that's going to be part of our organization, hopefully in the near term, uh, that automates a lot of the uh, data-driven processes, most notably um, the financial closing process, right? And so, you know, you don't, you're kind of flying blind to these businesses when you're making the products. Like you think you know what the margins are. You think you know that, um, you know, where they're going and what markets they're going into. But ultimately, it takes a long time for that data to percolate through the system. And then you're kind of looking in the, it's like driving in with in through the rear view, right? Um, we, we have implemented, uh, uh, a technology in our portfolio companies that has brought the closing time down from sometimes 30 to 40 days to one business day, um, because it's automated. It's really powerful and interesting. Nobody in our part of the market is doing that. What we're saying is, okay, that's great. I know what my EBITDA was last month. Awesome. Okay. Where else can we deploy that? into the Salesforce function, into the product design. There are a lot of opportunities to deploy uh, the automation technology and then eventually layering in AI, which is obviously just the beginning, um, to uh, you know bring a lot of sophistication to what was for decades a sleepy widget maker. A quick note to our listeners. We'll make sure to link the continuum video content examples in the show notes of this episode. I mean, again, I'm just going to wrap this up and a little move on to the next topic, which is that I think because you guys are a little bit younger and you're sort of creating your own path, that you're looking for embracing pretty advanced, sophisticated ways of doing kind of mundane aspects of the private equity industrial investing model. And you're not beholden to what was done 10 years ago. You're a little bit looking ahead, not necessarily behind. Yeah, look, that's one of the advantages of of being, you know, a new private equity fund uh, on on the block because, um, you know, there's a bit of a um, uh, there's a bit of a moral hazard is not the right word, um, but um, probably conflict of interest is is more appropriate, right? So imagine you're a private equity fund that's been around for 15 years, right, and you've printed top quartile returns in every vintage for two decades, right? And every time you go to raise a new fund, what you tell the market is, here's our playbook, right? It's worked for 20 years. 
here's our, you know, our, here's our, you know, value drivers. Here's our boxes that we check and here's our returns that are associated with the strategy, right? You are not incentivized to change that, right? As an investor, right? What you're incentivized to do is it's worked forever. I'm going to keep doing it and you're going to get these returns. It's a really easy thing to sell the market, right? Imagine that same conversation where the, you know, private equity fund has been around for 20 years, says, here's our playbook. It's to develop all these returns for you over two decades. We're blowing it up, right? If we're tossing in the garbage and we're creating a new one, right? If you're an investor, you'd be like, no, I don't, I don't want you to do that, right? Keep doing what you're doing. It's working, right? right? So there's there's a bit of a limitation on innovation uh, in, in my industry uh, because of that dynamic, right? Along those lines, if you were going to have a, a, a Iron City beer with a kid at Wharton today, because you're, again, you're relatively young in your career and a position of leadership and whatever, what are the one or two things you're going to tell that kid who's pining to get in private equity, you know, based on what I know now, here's what you should be thinking about. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, one of the the lessons that, that I've learned over the last, you know, few years, I mean, you know, look, we, we started Continuum when I was 35 years old, right? And that's very young in your career to, to start your own private equity fund, right? It's probably seven to 10 years ahead of the average of the center of the distribution of every new private equity fund that exists. I don't know that to be factually accurate, I'm guessing. Uh, and, you know, it, it's it's so cliche, um, but... But it, but for me, it's proven to be true, which is you you really have to trust your gut, bet on yourself. And if you actually have the confidence that you can do something, you need to trust what your instincts are telling you and kind of block out the noise, right? I, I kind of equate it to, uh, you know, when I was younger, I remember sitting in a board meeting, 25 years old, you know, as a junior associate. And, you know, the, the partners and the CEO are talking about, you know, an initiative that they want to deploy. And I almost wanted to raise my hand in the meeting and, and you know, give an amendment to that or give some, you know, a change to that or create or, or provide a different idea. Um, and I was a bit resident to do that, right? You know, like 25 year old, like shut up, like the, the professionals are talking right now. Um, and I would often find that, Fast forward 30 minutes in that same meeting, some other person would have the idea that was on the tip of my tongue that I didn't say, right? Um, and, you know, it, being in a position where you have the autonomy and the confidence to just say, this is what I think, here's why I think it, um, here are the reasons that I believe this to be true, let's go do it, and then people listen, believe you, and, and go forward on that basis. Um, it is something that I think a lot of folks are scared to kind of raise their hand, voice their opinion, because they think they're perhaps too junior, right? You know, there's a lot to be said with experience, right? But there's a lot to be said about, you know, having a different perspective and just speaking your mind and believing in, in what you think is the right approach to a certain situation. Well, from this side of, you know, our relationship, I can say with a high degree of clarity and certainty that what we've been able to achieve together in our role in building your firm has been because you folks, you and your Henry and, and Brian 
were open to a different way of doing things and candidly trusted in what we advocated. And, you know, I think so far it's played out pretty darn well. And, you know, hopefully it plays a role in your success. Um, and, you know, honestly, the, the relationship and the work we've produced together is uh, incredibly uh, gratifying and, um, you know, important to us. So thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, look, I, I, I say it to, you know, the people that call me that ask about you guys, I say it to our partners, right? Um, you guys have been uh, unbelievable, and you in particular, Scott, of, you know, taking what is, you know, a disparate set of ideas and finding what the identity and the underlying drivers of those ideas are and illuminating them in a, in a way that people can understand them, right? It's kind of connecting what's under the surface you know, that, that maybe we are struggling to properly articulate, um, and to an outside person, whether it's an investor, a business owner, an employee at a company and allowing them to latch onto something they make sense that they can believe. Right. So, um, so that's been a huge value add for us. Two things. Number one, we're always in search of a great story and you guys have a great fucking story. You just do. And you allowed us to tell it. The second of which, and we say this all the time, which is the best work never sees the light of day, let a client who will buy it. And you buy it all the time. So again, thank you. We're going to end with two Pittsburgh things. Again, I got to put your Pittsburghness on a pedestal in spite of my better instincts. Number one, if Primantis were for sale, would you buy it? You know, that's a, that's a, a conflicting question because I, 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 I know uh, some of the owners or old owners of it, and uh, while I am not personally a customer, um, they do seem like they have an excellent business model. Um, I would decline, unfortunately, because I buy businesses that make widgets, and a uh, sloppy sandwich uh, fails the test of precision. Okay, I've told you this, but I have to tell our audience. 1985, I'm four years out of school. I'm visiting some buddies in Pittsburgh. We're hanging out for the weekend. And we go downtown for July 4th for the big, you know, fireworks and the music at Point State Park. And, you know, we do 25-year-old things. We end up at Permantes at 3 o'clock in the morning where one of our buddies ends up um, talking back to Pittsburgh's finest. And we, we get chucked into the... Uh, the drunk tank for four hours and get let out oh at o'clock in the morning on the hill. And you can fill in the parts from there. So that's that's my Primantis uh, origin story. The last question. If you could have dinner with one Pittsburgh sports legend, dead or alive, who is it one? Yeah, I, 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 I've thought about that question before. Um, and uh, one person that you know, would be interesting. Um, I think he is still alive. Uh, is is Barry Bonds before he gained fifty pounds of muscle wax? He was very skinny. Uh, he he was incredible, but I'm not sure he was necessarily a legend because he was here for such a brief period of time. But um, I think that um, you know, um, again, a, a little little cliche. I never had the opportunity to meet him, but. Arnold Palmer uh, grew up, you know, uh, an hour sure. outside of Pittsburgh yeah. in Latrobe. Latrobe, uh, sure. Yeah, in Latrobe. 
And, you know, it was the Arnie and Jack story for the 60s and 70s and in, in golf. And he's a he's a huge guy in the Pittsburgh community. Everybody knows and lumps up. I'd love to hear, you know, what it was like to be, you know, the celebrity of your sport before all of the Instagram bullshit and news outlets talking about your personal life. Um, I've heard tangentially some some pretty uh, interesting stories about Arnie off the golf course. Um, and I wonder what it was like in the 60s with no cameras and no rules, right? Sir, this has been such a pleasure. We have gone over, and as a matter of fact, I promise you this will be a longest episode because there's so much good stuff we got. Awesome. Well, Scott, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and I'm sure we'll talk soon. That's our show for this week. Thank you for listening to our fifth episode of Beer Stories for Private Equity. From all of us at Monogram Group, thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button and you'll be notified as we release new episodes. Please check out the show notes in the description from today's episode. Our email is podcast at monogramgroup.com. Feel free to email us with any comments or questions and we'll try to answer them in our next episode.